New Year, everyone, and welcome to this latest instalment of our Brexit and Beyond podcast. And I'm delighted that our guest to usher in this new year is Chris Bickerton, who's a university lecturer in politics at Cambridge and official fellow at Queen's College. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? Hi, Alan. Uh, not bad, thanks. Chris is very annoying, I mean, from a personal point of view, because he's like a child and he's published so many books that have been so well received that I can't help but being slightly irritated by it. I want to talk to him a little bit about those books. Uh, And I want to start off, if that's okay, Chris, with what what I thought, I remember thinking as I read it, was just a fantastically ambitious book that you wrote, which was about member states as opposed to nation states. And I suppose it was about what European integration does to the states that are part of it. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. Um, You know, I I can't claim to be sort of precocious anymore. I'm now 41, Anand, so um, those days are long behind me. Um, (laughs) But uh, yes, I mean... That book, um, I suppose what I was trying to do with that book was to change a little bit the way we, I thought that we tended to think about the European Union, um, which was, and this is kind of an example, I, I suppose I, I didn't give in that book, but I've given often, is that we think of it kind of as like a mirage. It's like this thing out there, usually out there in Brussels, a set of institutions. Um, some people think of it as a kind of overpowerful super state. Some people don't, mm-hmm. but it's this thing out there. Um, but a bit like a mirage, as you just kind of get closer, you know, it sort of shimmers a bit and you get closer and closer. And by the time you actually get to the place, it's just disappeared. And I've always thought that the EU is a bit like that. By the time you get to Brussels, you do have buildings, you have institutions. Um, some of them are fairly powerful. Um, but the thing itself is not out there. I kind of associate the European Union as a union of, of governments, of states. But... And so I was, that's what I was trying to do was to recenter the way we think about the EU, to think about it as what are the units that make it up, assuming, and this is my view, that there isn't this all-powerful centre located geographically in Brussels that lords it over the, the member states. The member states are very much at the centre of the EU, but you know, they are member states rather than nation states. And member states, you know, everyone talks about member states as if it's a sort of... Um, if it's like a, as if it's a legal category, it's a juridical category. So once you join, you're a member state. If you've not joined yet, you're still a nation state. If you were to leave, like the UK, you now become a nation state. It's just like a, a legal title. Um, and my sort of idea in the book was really just to say, actually, it's more than that. These states that make up the European Union and are really the essence of the European Union are very different from sort of older nation states. They've become this thing, these these member states. And I was trying to explore what I thought that what, what I thought that was. I suppose that's the key point, isn't it? Is that is that membership changes the texture of stateness. Is that you you don't you don't just join and carry on as before as a member of the European Union. You join and become a fundamentally different sort of institution stroke organization. And for you, is that is that change a positive thing? So I suppose there are two things about that. One is to answer your second question first, broadly no. Um, the other thing though is it's never been clear to me, and I suppose in the book I sort of played around with different possibilities, and I still think it's quite a complicated question is when is if the change actually happens first at the national level as the basis for which then European integration can take off and my feeling was always that actually there were certain preconditions at the national level that were necessary before it was possible for 
this sort of member statehood to really flourish. So it's not so much that the EU caused the change to member statehood, it's that the shift from nation states to member states laid the basis for European integration, at least sort of uh, that later stage uh, from the mid-1980s onwards. However, there comes a point, and I think we're definitely at that stage, where because of the way the European Union works, it does begin to accelerate and sort of serve as a catalyst for member statehood and also reinforce and make it very difficult to go back to something closer more to close something closer to a more traditional nation state so it kind of locks states into member statehood um, and no generally I kind of saw it as a negative development rather than a positive development. I mean for some I mean there's, there's a history of scholarship on, on European integration that argues that what the EU does is it domesticates international politics that is to say you know, all those people who write about how the EU has you know been one of the drivers for peace in Western Europe but in a sense You've turned that argument on its head, haven't you? And you're almost arguing that what the EU does is internationalise domestic politics. That is to say, it cartelizes national executives who work together free of the constraints of home inside the European Union. You think that's a fair way of categorising it? Yeah, I think, I mean, the term cartel kind of is kind of loaded with sort of theories about how party systems have been cartelized mm. and a lot of that stuff. I, I actually kind of discovered a lot of that party system literature later after I'd written that book and I really sort of um, was inspired by it but I hadn't sort of I wasn't familiar with that when I wrote it but I think that's right basically the point is and this is sort of you know um, it's always a simplification but um, the way I kind of understand the nation state is that state society relations are fairly sort of densely packed fairly tightly bound um, the sense of sort of identification between rulers and their publics is kind of mediated through the categories of nationhood and then in the 20th century definitely partisan politics kind of partisan traditions of left mm -hmm. and right and the, transi the transition to nation to member statehood is where you get a sort of emptying out or hollowing out of that state society relationship and at the European level you start to get these very dense networks uh, horizontal networks between national governments so you know the executives and then the various kind of arms of the executive and that is very, you know, sort of intense, really. There's a lot of sort of policy making overlap. I've always kind of thought that, you know, civil servants who for a long time got used to getting on the Eurostar sort of, you know, British civil servants, you know, uh, every week would just not know what to do with all their time once they'd stopped doing that. It had become the pattern of their sort of day-to-day -to -day -day, uh, life as, as actors in, in government. But you then have this big gap and it sort of is cut off from this day-to-day -day life of, of, of national uh, populations of citizens in their sort of national level. And, uh, and for me, that gap is really problematic. It's problematic in terms of representation, in terms of sort of democracy, and it's problematic in terms of identification as well. It means people find it difficult to identify with their own political elites. And those political elites identify much more with themselves in this European setting than they do with their own national uh, national uh, constituents. And that, you know, is a, is a big problem. I'll come back in a minute to the democratic question, which I think, you know, in a sense, lies at the heart of your normative critique of the EU and membership mm. of the EU. But I suppose the other, the other thing to touch on is that the other way in the literature that people have handled this is to argue that what we've basically done is recreated the traditional state at EU level. There's a whole literature now that applies the tools of comparative politics to the European Union. I'm, I'm detecting from what you're saying that actually you don't think that's quite right, that actually this is a wholly different sort of beast at European level and we're not recreating the nation state writ large at continental level. Yeah, I, I don't think we are. Um, I mean, I know 
you know, certainly the last 10 years or so, uh, the book that we're sort of talking about was published in 2012. Over the last 10 years or so, there have been important changes. Um, but I was always skeptical of sort of thinking that the EU, you can just sort of take those categories of comparative politics, like the legislature, executive legislature, legislature relations, relations to the, the judiciary, these kind of kind of taxonomies of national, you know, uh, political institutions and just say, well, what do we find at the European level? Well, we find this political system that's organized in this way. I always thought that it kind of missed the point, really, which is that you're not recreating the same thing at the European level. You have this very different beast, which is a series of very intense and sort of overlapping relationships between national executives at the European level. And then you have these European institutions, you know, which have their particular place and their role. But they are very peculiar ones. You know, the European Parliament is called the Parliament, but it's very different from what we think of as a, as a legislature. The lawmaking process in the European Union is, again, very different. And, and this was, this development, I think, has kind of come since what you described, people sort of started to think of the EU as a political system. We now have this very powerful European Council, uh, which seems to me perfectly consistent with the idea that, you know, there is clear delegation to the European Commission, but in terms of sort of any sort of locus of power, power has been retained by, by member states. And now they have this vehicle of the European Council, which is, from the perspective of a citizen, phenomenally difficult to get a sense of what is going on in that. I remember sort of trying to find out whether you could get minutes for European Council meetings. Um, and it's not even that you can't get minutes, it's that the system for sort of transcribing what was said in those European Council meetings is so elaborately secretive that this is basically an ideal forum for leaders, heads of state and government to, on a personal level, thrash out issues and discuss things without any sort of public scrutiny whatsoever. So, you know, that to me, you know, none of that really sounds like a political system that's familiar to us when we study kind of national politics. And do you think, I mean, both of us, I suppose, as, as well as being political scientists, are in that broad field called European studies. Do you think European studies was just too bought into the idea of European integration? There wasn't enough criticism or attempt to sort of normatively criticise the project? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I think that's, that is true. So I, I don't think it's uncommon that people study something they like or study that they are interested in in a sort of positive way. And so if you're sort of, if you become a sort of scholar, I suppose you become sort of devoted to kind of investigating something and writing about it and thinking about it in all kind of walks of life there is a kind of normative alliance i suppose if you're if you're a sort of climate scientist you're probably very you know sort of in love with nature i so i mean i'm guessing it's kind of fairly common in all walks of life but um certainly in the kind of social sciences it's really problematic i think uh, if those two things overlap too much and i always thought that studying the european union should you know I do it because I'm, I sort of love Europe. Like I'm just passionately sort of, you know, interested in things European, but I never saw it as inconsistent to also be very critical about the European Union. It seemed to me sort of um, perfectly sort of acceptable. But I came up against a lot of sort of instances where it just seemed that you were somehow, yeah, the sort of doing, you were doing an injustice to the aspiration and that it was somehow anti-European or sort of somehow and especially being British, you were kind of tarred with the brush of sort of kind of rabid Eurosceptic when you aired any sort of critical sort of comment on the EU, which doesn't happen, I think, for people who are in some of the kind of considered the core member states. Uh, they sort of get away with it in a way because 
those countries are, you know, pretty firmly sort of at the centre of the European Union. So yeah, I, I think um, in lots of different aspects of it, the critical scholarship around the European Union is fairly constrained. Some of it might to do we might be to do with funding, I think, which is the the sort of um, the overlap between getting funding from European institutions and studying the European Union is fairly tight. I've never had any use sort of fund of any kind, and so maybe that's going to give me more freedom. I don't know. Being critical of the object that you study is not hypocritical. It's actually, you know, in actual fact, probably a sort of a, a fairly good thing. We're just going to take a very quick break now, but we'll be back before you realise it. Hello there. I'm Katie Hayward, Senior Fellow for UK and a Changing Europe, specialising in Northern Ireland and Brexit, based at Queen's University in Belfast. Apologies for interrupting, but seeing as you're here, I thought you might be interested in signing up to our newsletter, which is now weekly. You can keep up to speed by going to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk. See you there. You have this critique of the European Union, and particularly of its lack of democratic credentials. Is that what made you become sceptical of UK membership? I think it is, to be honest. I think um, I think my sort of uh, sort of a, a constant feature in my sort of I don't know intellectual life has been, in some way or another, some sort of attempt to try and sort of orientate myself towards what I think of as the defense of a sort of a, a set of democratic processes that are not particularly sort of esoteric or anything. I'm not a deliberative democracy sort of person or anything, but just basic sort of sense of, of representation. And, you know, it might have come from, I don't know, my own sort of experience of having transitioned through all these elite institutions is just a, a, a skepticism about the kind of what's the word, the sort of the kind of sort of smug complacency that you find in these institutions about making a, an argument that just happens to coincide with, you know, the general interest or their own interests, just a sort of a, a, a kind of critical gaze, I think. Um, and that sort of uh, has really driven me, I think. And on this particular case, yeah, I think I sort of, um, I just felt that it was consistent with my critique of the European Union to logically argue that it would be better if, you know, if a country was not a member of it, or if the whole thing was uh, was sort of um, pared down and made very different, uh, and mm. essentially taken apart with maybe one or two bits that sort of represent sort of more elementary basis, basic ba an elementary basis for interstate cooperation, but just not to have the European Union as it is. That seemed to me consistent. And it wasn't sort of. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the economy. I mean, certainly, sort mm. of um, thinking about the exit of a member state is almost dominated by questions of trade, questions of sort of, um, you know, replicating trade agreements and economic costs to exit. And my own sort of position was about being kind of in favour of UK exit was never really premised on the economic possibilities of of Brexit. It was more around, I just thought that it was in a democratic sense, the, the right thing to argue for. But do you do you buy that there is that trade-off between reclaiming control, as we came to call it, and economics? I absolutely buy that there's a trade-off between exercising more democratic control over our political life and uh, access to what is called the single market. Absolutely. I remember being sort of at the end of last year as we were kind of inching our way towards a final deal. I remember hearing, I think it was Lisa Nandy on Radio 4, and this was, you know, we've had years and years of this argument, years of it. Um, and it was getting to the crunch. And the person asked her, he said, do you, and they were sort of against no deal. And so the, the question to Lisa and Andy was, so do you accept that if you don't support no deal, then you're having a trade-off between less sovereignty, but more sort of access to the single market? 
And she sort of was unable to say, yes, I do accept there's a trade-off. She kind of sort of had some sort of way of getting around the question. And I just thought, you know, this is, no, it's been a long time and it is very obvious the way the European Union operates and what the UK wants to do, there is a fundamental incompatibility. You can't have it both ways. And I think that I was always in favor of a deal. I was in favor of sort of earlier in forms of the deal. I was never a no dealer, uh, but there is a trade-off. You can't, uh, you can't have it both ways, yeah. I always felt that it was worth it. And I wasn't convinced that the UK as a, you know, I always thought of it as a strong and very sort of uh, a successful economy would be able to, uh, would be able to manage that exit and, uh, and also do well afterwards. Okay, okay. Well, I'm going to come back to that in a sec. But I suppose one question I need to ask is, do you think that Leave campaigners were particularly honest when it came to that trade-off? I mean, I see the point, leave the European Union, regain control over your own affairs, rebuild that relationship between governed and governors. But for some on the Leave side, they, they denied the fact that this would involve any kind of economic cost. So I think there's two things there. One thing is, so I'm not a campaigner. I've definitely learned that over the course of the last five years. It's just not my thing at all. And I'm both bad at it and I don't sort of, it's not what interests me. Um, so I'm not a campaigner. If you're in a campaign, it may be that there are, I don't know, pressures on you that shape the way you say things. I, I imagine that's, I can mm. accept that. I mean, politicians, I suppose, operate within a universe that's not entirely free. However, so, so who knows what I would have done if I'd have been involved in that campaign? You know, who knows what mm. I would have said, how kind of clear I'd have been about it. The second thing is that I do think things have evolved. And if I go back to kind of 2016 and that campaign, I don't think I quite appreciated, and certainly on the Leave side, it wasn't clear, exactly the specific sort of nature of Brexit itself and whether it would be possible uh, to leave the European Union, formally speaking, as a member state, but retain various bits of access to the single market in a sort of in a so it had never been sort of, you know, clarified, which I think is not sort of which is a normal thing. Like, I think this was a question set in a referendum and the specifics of it are something that I would have expected a government to then deal with afterwards. But certainly during the campaign, Brexit was just a thing, but the modalities of it weren't very clear. So the trade-off, even at that time, though it definitely existed and has come to exist, wasn't sort of brought out as much. In some ways, I think the enormity of even contemplating exit was so large that, you know, maybe the discussion didn't get as far as, well, actually, what would the specific, you know, it was also not clear that the hard or the soft Brexit would be necessary one way or the other. None of these things were very clear. What I don't think is forgivable, really, though, is after four or five years having, you know, leading politicians denying that the trade-off exists. I mean, it, I think that's just not, you know, it's been so long, it's very clear that it does. And it's, you know, it's now been put into practice, you know, that's... Uh, that's what we've seen now. I suppose I'd be slightly more cynical than you in saying that the, the ambiguity about what Brexit meant was deliberate to hold together a rather ramshackle coalition that disagreed on objectives. So I think it was more strategic than it was more strategy than oversight. But you, you said earlier you think the UK can make a success of this and be successful going forward. Is that because the UK will become a more successful and more effectively functioning democracy? So the quality of democratic political life will be improved? Or is that because you think that there are genuine economic opportunities to be sees when we're outside the orbit as we are now of EU law. I'm less sure about the sort of the second I think um, because it kind of depends on the first to be honest so I think there are possibilities there are lots of things that a government could do um, and if it's not bound by European law it can do you know in addition to that many other things um, but whether there's the will to do it I think depends a lot on the politics um, and to be honest I've sort of I mean it's been a long kind of period I found the sort of 
the post-Brexit sort of fallout, really an incredible sort of moment in British political history, really. Um, I mean, you can have lived, you know, through it in a very intense way. And, and those kind of few years of the parliamentary sort of debate and the sort of torturous efforts by Theresa May and the, you know, the, the election that she sort of went for that didn't work. And then finally everything kind of gets wrapped up in 29. I mean, it was just an amazing period in yeah. British political history. And in many ways exhilarating, I sort of think, in terms of the kind of sort of um, intensity it gave to how politics matters. Um, and that was, I think, you know, incredibly important and the thing which may was maintained throughout and i you know always felt that may got such a hard time and what she actually was trying to do was something very laudable which i think has been done and is so important is that at the end of the day whatever side you're on however sort of um sort of ambivalent your attitude is to brexit at the end of the day there was a sense in which the principle of consent was pushed through the basic institutions of government and led to the final outcome that was consistent with the vote of 2016. And that for me was just so important for the integrity of British politics, but also for kind of um, for the globe and certainly for, um, for, for European politics, a really important thing to have happened and a very positive thing. That said, I'm not convinced using my own sort of language that the UK has managed to, certainly not yet, or is even on the way to not becoming a member state anymore. Um, mm. The trappings of member statehood, I think, are still very prominent. It's also, I also think that. Can you Brexit, just elucidate on that? What? what, what uh, well, what, I suppose one of the kind of features of sort of member states, one of them is really the dominance of the executive, and within the British kind of political system, it's not clear to me that now, as we leave the European Union, the state, the role, and the centrality of the executive, and the, I suppose, the weakness it puts on what we might call sort of party democracy, you know, democracy where you have essentially this competition between parties and the parties represent these different views of how to run society. And that's really the basic sort of yeah. uh, logic of democratic representation. It's not clear to me that that has been necessarily strengthened as yet. It's still very executive heavy. A lot of some of the kind of institutional features of the deal that's been struck puts a lot of discretion um, into the hands of adjudicators on both sides away from public scrutiny so in some ways i think some of the downsides of member statehood still persist and i hope that that will sort of change over time but it's not changed yet so i think you know but overall i think the sort of um, i'm optimistic about the impact on british democracy especially in the light of those last few years that i think some people thought of as this disaster and i thought of as just this amazing sort of example of trying to articulate views and manage conflicts on the economics i'm just more sort of uncertain i think it depends on what governments are willing to are willing to achieve but i certainly think the uk can you know, can manage in a, can manage economically outside of the of the european union and absorb some of the costs that it will have to take uh, by being outside of the single market but you're you're relatively optimistic that the kind of mobilization around an increased interest in politics can be maintained now. Well, so I hope so. Um, there's a, a colleague of mine, Lee Jones uh, from Queen Mary. He kind of talks about Brexit as being a democratic moment rather than a democratic movement. I think that's right. I think it had the quality of being this m sort of this kind of moment that found it difficult to sustain itself, and that's still the case. So. I mean, I hope I so I hope that it won't be just won't go back to the kind of status quo ante uh, in terms of party politics, where people feel sort of distanced and not really represented and can't can really care less about what the parties do. I hope that's not going to be the case. I mean, I, you know, personally, my trajectory is somebody who was never that invested in party politics. To be honest, I was never a member of a political party. I was interested in international relations. I was interested in European politics. 
was never really that interested in British politics. And then I found myself absolutely plunged into the sort of intricacies of the British political system in a way that I'd never sort of done before. And, and that, I think, is not just a unique experience. I think that's been other people's experiences. Well. I hope that sense of what governments do at home sense that it matters will remain because if it remains then people will be interested and will be mobilized if they think it doesn't matter anymore because deals are being done elsewhere or behind closed doors then people just drift off and, and mm. drift off into their own private sphere i've got to ask you what was it like being a leaf supporter at an institution like cambridge i mean it had its moments um i mean it wasn't it was a kind of curious experience it, there were very few people who around me had publicly taken any sort of position on brexit um mm. There was uh, Robert, Robert Toombs was one person who I met through that. And both he and I were Brexiters sort of publicly before the, the vote. Uh, there were a couple of others, but to be honest, it was, there were very few people. So it was a rather sort of, um, it's been a rather lonely experience, but, um, but I found people generally, it wasn't very conflictual. People would avoid conflict, but they would just avoid talking to you about it. And they would sort of shuffle away to not sort of um, have to deal with, with you. So uh, I mean, generally I thought, um, the institution certainly as a whole, I mean, Cambridge is not unique here as higher education as a whole. The bias was very strong. I mean, it was generally acceptable and encouraged to make articulate pro-European positions. Um, it was seen as some sort of heresy to articulate a pro-Brexit position and you weren't encouraged to do so. You weren't silenced. Nobody ever sort of said to me, you're not allowed to say that. There was never any sort of direct censorship at all. Um, but it was just simply not encouraged. And certainly the way sort of authorities here mobilized the student body, it was all in terms of, you know, what, you know, you know what your duty is on the 23rd of uh, June, you know, remain is really the only option for this university. Uh, and I think that was a, yeah, that's a problem for the sector, I think. Why? I mean, that was my next question in a sense. Does this sort of political or intellectual homogeneity, does it, does it matter for the higher education sector? I think it matters for any sort of community. I think diverse views is kind of um, is the only way you sort of think through things. It's the only way you kind of you know get beyond platitudes. I think is to is to sort of argue your way uh, through something. Uh, so I think that does matter. But it matters also, I think, because it may be that it's within the economic interest of the higher education sector for the UK to have remained in. That may be the case. And now we're seeing exactly what are the kind of schemes that the UK will be outside of. But the way I sort of experienced the arguments being made around me was never that this is our sectoral interest, yeah. you know, a narrow rather, you know, sort of a parochial sectoral interest, even if it might not be an interest of many other people. And even if we lose the vote because there are more people who in whose interest it is to go the other way, this is our own sector's interest. That's not how it was presented. It was presented as a much grander sort of this is the thing that's the best for all of the UK and anybody who thinks otherwise just really doesn't get it. So I'm always a bit suspicious when a sectoral interest is presented as this grand interest for the, for the country as a whole. I would have been much more comfortable if the sector had just said, look, as a sector, we feel and we've done the numbers that this is in our interest. But of course, there are other factors, there are other arguments. And what's the interest of one sector in society might not be the interests of, of many others. But I always felt that it wasn't really presented in as honest a way as that. Yeah, interesting. I think I shared some of those concerns about the sector and how it approached the referendum. I've, I've messed this up in the sense that I wanted to talk to you about techno-populism, which is a term you've coined in a really nice piece you did for the New Statesman. But we've sort of run out of time, so it means that you're going to have to agree to come back and do this again at some point. When we can well, talk about that. Okay. Chris, thanks ever so much and happy new year to you. Thanks, Alan, and to you too.